John 20, verses 1 to 10. So I invite you, if you got God's Word, open it up with me, and let's read this together. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Pray with me. Lord, now as we come to your word in this time that your people gathered on this the Lord's day to remember your resurrection we gathered ourselves around worship we gather ourselves around prayer we gather ourselves around the word of God to hear from you our father who is in heaven and so speak to us today encourage us in our in our good times or in our times of even for some of us despair today. Lift us up, bind us to your son today. Through the resurrection that is our resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. So look back with me in chapter 19. We're going to begin our study really in verse 38. Jesus goes from the cross last week to the grave. What was interesting here in this story is how he comes to get in the grave. Because you see, as a man who was judged guilty of sedition and, and put on a cross, they would have just left them there. They would have just left them on the cross and the vultures would have come and finished them off. But instead, we see something very interesting. We see two prominent religious men come into the scene in Jesus' life, and one of them we've already heard from before. The one man was named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he was a prominent, wealthy man, most likely a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the text here says that he was a believer but wasn't vocal about it. We could say that he was ashamed. He was afraid to come out of the shadows and into the light. Uh, and so these two men go from secrecy to the to part of the secret group, to part of the unashamed group. And we see this happening, but John wants us to focus on a man named Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? He wants you to remember John 3, that we've already had an encounter with Nicodemus. And Jesus had told him, you must be born again. And here we now see he comes with 70 pounds of spices, to wrap Jesus' body. And so Jesus is spared the indignity of hanging on the cross and letting the vultures finish him off by these two men who were ashamed and now they have stepped into the light and asked for Jesus' body and now they prepare it, prepare it for burial. The spices were important. 
you see, because the Egyptians would embalm, but the Jewish people did not. And so they would wrap the body in the linen cloths with these spices around, and it kept the smell of decomposition down. So Jesus is taken into the grave. And, but this leads us to ask this question, are, are we actually part of the secret or of the unashamed? There's two extremes, and most likely, I know I've struggled with one of these this week, and I would almost bet you have. If not, you will next week. <laughs> There's two extremes in the Christian life that John wants us to guard against, and one of them, if you've ever read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he called this cheap grace. This is one extreme in the Christian life that many people struggle with. This is grace without the cross. It is grace without a cost. It is grace without a denial. It is grace without a dying to self. There is another extreme. It is what I call hopeless grace. It is a grace without victory. It is a grace with only the cross. It is a grace that says, God, I have done all this for you, and look what it has gotten me, but I guess this is just my cross to bear, and I'm just going to have to grin and get through it. It is a cross with no resurrection, a cross with no victory. To lose the cross is to fall into cheap grace. To lose the resurrection is to lose the victorious power that we are meant to live with today and tomorrow and our hope for the future. This is what John wants us to get this morning. So let's not miss these two points. That there is victory because Jesus is alive over sin and death. That is our first point. Our second point is a sweeter point, a more personal point. That the reality that we are a forever family. So let's look at the first point. The resurrection brings victory over sin and death. There is a threefold witness testimony that John intentionally brings up. He, he's contrasting this over against this sham trial that put Jesus to death that didn't even have any witnesses, any credible witnesses. You get these sort of threefold witness. You have Mary's testimony, you have Peter's, and you have John's. Mary gets to the grave, you remember, and sees the tomb empty. She is afraid. She is confused. She is desperate. She runs back and she tells Peter and John, the tomb, the, grave, the rock has been rolled away and it's open. Somebody's taken him. Somebody's done something with our Lord. And so they take off. And, and uh, John must be a little bit younger, a little bit more spry. He gets there first, but he's not as bold as Peter. He doesn't go in. He just looks in. He sees the linen cloths lying there. But when Peter gets in, being bold Peter, Peter just runs in. But we see in what John wants us to see and think through is his testimony. Look at verses 8 to 10. It says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And listen to what it says. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the other disciples went back to their homes. John is bearing witness that he, when he went into the empty tomb, that, that the body was not there, but the linen cloths were there. And he even gives us this detail that the, the face covering they would put over the face was, was lying there folded separately. He also notes that the disciples didn't understand the scripture. They wasn't looking towards this. 
but that he saw and that he believed. I want us to see just this morning three victorious points because Jesus is alive this morning. This is not new to me. This is a teaching that somebody taught me. I don't even remember who it, who it was. But it helps us not be able to separate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it gives us three Ps, three words that start with P that helps us understand this victory. The first is the word penalty. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the penalty of our sin has been paid for and has been removed forever. We call this in our faith justification. We have been declared righteous. You see, the fear of death in your life and mine is real. And I hate to break it to you this morning. Even if you're 10 years old and listening to this, you're dying. And you know it. And death brings fear to every single person, it at least brings a sense of soberness. The reality that all of your physical dreams and hopes and aspirations have an anchor in this world and that one day you're going to leave it all. It brings us to soberness. And listen, it brings people to desperation who do not believe in the resurrection. The resurrection is important because death is a reality. Both if you look at Romans 3 and Romans 6, you see that we are sinful and that the wages of sin is death. And we cannot escape it. And if something is to be done about it, something must be done with both sin and death. That this is a cause and effect. Because sin came in, death came into play. And so both need to be defeated if we are to have victory. And so we see that our fear of death is real, but the victory of, over death is ours because of the penalty. So let's just look at a couple of passages. I told somebody this week when you're studying, no matter what sermon it is, you'll oftentimes find yourself in Hebrews because Hebrews attaches all of the Bible together, old and new. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ, himself, likewise partook of the same things. Now listen to what it's saying. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You are a slave outside of Christ to your own fear, and you are a slave to your own sin. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 begins to teach us how this victory is ours and what this victory looks like. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. Verse 14, how did he do that? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. This is our victory. 
our, the debt that comes with our sin that condemns us to eternal death has been nailed to the cross and went down into the grave with the Lord. But he is alive. How do we experience this victory? You see, the application of victory is by faith alone. Romans, hard to beat the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans a lot today to see the victory of the resurrection. Romans 4, verse 25 tells us this, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but he was raised, he was resurrected for our justification, our declaration of righteousness that we desperately need if this is to be fixed has been given to us and it is applied into our life by faith and by faith alone. Romans 5.1 says we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. It's only by faith. The only way victory over the fear of death and victory over sin and death comes is through faith in Christ alone. What is faith? Again, Romans chapter 4 talking about Abraham, says that Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised him was true. That's faith. It's nothing else. So we have the penalty, but we also have the power. This is our sanctification. Listen to Paul talking in Romans of Romans 6. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing, listen, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Our death was a death in Christ and our resurrection is a resurrection in Christ. You see, you've got to put all this together. We are united with him in his sinless life because we could not be sinless. We are united with him in his atoning death that paid that debt for us. And we are united with him in his resurrection that guarantees us that everything that he's ever promised us is true. And we receive that by faith and by faith alone. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now we begin to see the power. The power is what we call our sanctification. It is that because Christ is alive, we now experience a new life, a newness of life in how we walk. Romans 6.22 says it this way, But now we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let us go back to our story now. And look at verses 9 and 10. The reality is the disciples nor Mary was expecting any of this. They did not expect the grave to be empty. They were locked in a room afraid they were going to die. Remember the fear of death? That's what they were afraid of. So they see the tomb empty. The disciples, the Peter and John, see it. And they says they went back to their house. Not Mary. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. This brings us to our third P, presence. That one day 
we will be glorified. We see this in the transformed body of Jesus Christ at the resurrection. Now we're going to come back to the angels. But think about Jesus' first appearance. It was to Mary. It was to women. If we look at the other Gospels, Mary wasn't, Mary wasn't alone when she went to the tomb. There were other women with her, but they, all the Gospels focus in on Mary Magdalene here. Get verse 14. Having said this, she turned around, having this conversation with the angels. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. We're not given by John any explanation for why Mary didn't recognize Jesus. But we do remember the two old men on the road to Emmaus, don't we? That we were told specifically that their eyes were prevented from understanding who this was. It seems to be that the same thing is going on there. You see, Jesus has been glorified. He has been transformed. And yet, if you read the rest of the story, and we will, you will see that his body can be touched and handled. His body still bears the scars of his crucifixion. And yet he can show up in a locked room. He can cook fish and eat it. And yet he rose through the grave clothes. It's an amazing reality. Jesus' body has been transformed into a glorified body. And this has been told and taught to us that we too one day will be raised with a glorified body. Everybody wants to understand this. So did the church in Corinth. And so they were asking questions to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 35, Paul knows this. And so he says, but someone's going to ask me, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Verse 42, he says this way. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It, was ra it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Brothers and sisters, if you take this to its ultimate conclusion, you will end up in Revelation 21 when one day our bodies will not only be glorified, but it will be free from the presence of sin. Revelation 21 verse 22 says this, And I saw a new temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gate will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the victory. Victory over fear of death. Victory over sin and death. 
The ability to have our enslavement of sin conquered so that we can live in newness of life. And the promise that one day our bodies will be free of sin and death in the presence of the Lamb. And if that's not enough, brothers and sisters, we are brought into this reality that we now are a forever family. I just, there's a whole nother sermon here, but I just want you to see verse 17 and 18 this morning. Jesus said, to her, talking to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go tell my brothers and say to them, now listen, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to his disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to her. Jesus changes the disciples' status And John has brought this in for the first time. He's your father. Go tell not my disciples, not my followers, but you go tell my brothers. Their status has been changed. John 10 verse 4 says this, When he had brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. You see, it only took one word from Jesus to let Mary know who he was. He said her name. He said, Mary. At that point, the scale from her eyes fell. Kids know when their mom and dad calls for them. They know their voice. And so we know our Lord's. This is what changed everything this is what put her grief her confusion to bed one simple word her name and what does he tell her to say you go tell him that i am ascending both to my father and to your father to my god to your god to my for he is now we are brothers i just want you to see that you see a forever family changes everything That's adoption language, and we shouldn't use it of animals, by the way. That's that's an adoption language of taking someone who has not a family and making them your family and making them your family forever. This is what Christ has done to us. You did not get into the family of God unless through adoption. A family, a forever family, brings belonging. You see, the word, my God, points us to peace. We've read it already, Romans 5.1. It says, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You see, a family has a home. And in this home, there must be peace. The worst damage you ever see done to children is to have a home where there's no peace, to have a home where they are abused, to have a home where they are neglected because a home is a place of peace. And we are brought in to God's family, where there is peace. What would you do to protect your family? And yet your ability is limited. Your power, your resources, God's is not. He is our Father. His power is unlimited. His resources cannot be measured. His sovereign power cannot be contained. He's our Father. And that brings us belonging. It brings us peace. It brings us rest. How about my Father? A lot we could say, my father brings unending love. 
Just listen. This has always been true, by the way. God doesn't change. Jeremiah 31, 3, he says of his people, The Lord appeared to him from far away, proclaiming, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Being in the family of God means that his love has no measure. It also has no end. It is everlasting. See, we don't have to, like Mary, cling on to Jesus, afraid he's going to disappear. For because he is alive, we are in his family. We rest in his hand. He calls us by name and he is not going to leave us nor forsake us. It is his promise to us. It is a family promise. He is also our brother. My brother brings acceptance. It brings approval. Keep in mind that Jesus his mother, Mary, is now being cared for by a non-biological family member named John. Jesus is establishing something here. He is establishing his forever family, and he calls his forever family the church. A forever family brings belonging, but it also brings an inheritance. There again, another message. But let us remember Jesus' name. Jesus inherited a name. In Philippians 2.9, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord of everything, and Romans 8.17 tells us that we are joint heirs with him. He is the Lord of everything, and you and I are His family, and we are joint heirs. What does Jesus inherit? Everything. Everything. So today, I just want to remind you of this beautiful truth that was in Daniel 7, 13. There is a kingdom that is already here, and there is the fullness of that kingdom that is yet to come. Listen to this kingdom. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, shall not be destroyed. This is our father. This is our brother. This is God. His kingdom is here. Reigning through us and through our lives and through the mission of God that he had given us. We have no fear of our father abandoning us. For our father has died and, and slaughtered his own son. Raised him from the dead to ensure who we are in Christ. And he has given us his representatives and his family a mission. You ever ask this question? What's Jesus doing like right now? You know, he ascended in his glorified physical body. He is in heaven. Like, what's he doing? <laughs> you know, you ever wondered that question? Well, the Bible tells us, at least in part. I want you to get this image, though. Go back with me to the grave for a minute when Mary looks in. And what does she see? You remember those two angels? Sitting at the head and the foot of the place where Jesus used to be lying. The grave closed there in the middle. Does that bring anything to mind? 
These angels point to that time when there was an ark. You remember the ark of the covenant? Two angels sitting there over the mercy seat. What did that represent? What does this mean now? It means that for Jesus is alive. We are, he is forever available to us. I want you to hear this. What is he doing right now? Well, Romans 8 tells us, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, verse 34. More than that was who was raised. Listen to what he's doing. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so this leads to a question. If this is what he's doing, this is a good question. If he is for us, is he is interceding for us today, right now, as I am talking, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a good question. What you're going through, how you feel, your perspective on your situation, will it change? Will this separate you from the love of Christ? Will your failures, your addiction, will this separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, COVID? What this can cause in our life is what we see here in verse 36. It can cause God's people to say, Oh God, how bad is this? We are being slaughtered for your sake, Lord. What's the hope of all this? This is so hard. What's the point? What does Paul say? Look at verse 37. No. He said, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We must be sure. We must in faith understand that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor deaths, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, children know they can call on mom and dad at the worst times of their life or just to say hello. And they can do it anytime because they have instant access for our father is never too busy to hear from his kids. Matter of fact, do you know this? In Hebrews 2, chapter 10, it says this, that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his child. Why is that? Well, it says in verse 11, the one who sanctifies and the one who is sanctified all have one source. Jesus who is sanctifying us and we who are being sanctified has one source, and that is our Father. And because this work is finished, and because He is our Father, our Father, and Jesus' Father, He is not ashamed to call us His child. I don't know of any precious reality than that truth. As I was driving over here this morning, this scene popped in my head. You've probably seen it in movies before. It's a movie scene. Two great armies are on, on the battlefield. There's the villain and all his, peop- all his army, and then there's the hero of the movie. And, and the creators of the movie have pulled you into this movie, and it is if you are in the army of, with the hero. And then this great battle ensues. And in the battle and the gore of this war, you get glimpses of your hero, but eventually you lose track of him. And then the scene pans and you see 
people lying everywhere and the smoke of the of war is is everywhere and then the smoke begins to clear the question is is there any victory and then in a distance you see your hero as the as the smoke begins to clear your hero comes across the battlefield sword in hand stronger than he was before the battle and you know this because he is alive we have the victory This is the picture John wants us to see this morning. The question is this, with John, is can you see and will you believe? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this victory. We don't have the words. We are so rejoicing in our own souls that the Spirit helps us pray rightly. And Jesus is actually interceding for us Lord, you know our hearts, and so now we have come to this time. Even, Lord, if we are sitting in our den, there's, this is no difference. When we hear the word of God, we will respond, and we must respond. Oh, God, we amen what we said at the beginning, that our lives be a living sacrifice to you. That you would forgive us for thinking that we need to just Hold on with all of our might lest we fall and perish when you tell us you are holding on to us. Lord, may our clinging be a passionate hug this morning. We hold fast to you, not because we think that you're going to drop us, but because we love you. May our worship reflect that heart. May our mission our evangelism, our walking with those that are hurt or broken, our deliverance of those that are being oppressed and neglected. May all of that be driven by your passionate love for us, the victory we have through our resurrected Lord. And so now we worship you. We remind ourselves that you have defeated death and that you have set us free. You be worshipped and glorified now as we worship you and then as we go out into our lives as a living sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.